Welcome, I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki, and you're listening to Talking Tachlis, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. So Uri, we got a lot of interesting feedback after last week's episode. Yeah, we did. It's been a lot of fun to hear from a lot of people, people I know, people I don't know, uh, with their thoughts. What were some of the yeah. things that you got that you found interesting? Um, I had a pretty interesting discussion with a listener of the podcast who really disagreed with my argument. Basically, one of the arguments that I feel like I was making is that culture for its own sake is not valuable. So if I'm, you know, a Spurs fan and I'm like, no, I really want to marry another Spurs fan so we can continue that legacy. You know, my my parents were Spurs fans, my grandparents were Spurs fans, that's really important to me. That is not important in and of itself. Yes, it's important to me, but it's not really important for the sake of the world. And he actually really disagreed with me. And this is someone who who I really respect and he's actually studying culture. He's getting his his graduate degree in Talmud, which in, he claims is actually like a basic <laughs> study of culture. Mm-hmm. And um, and he really disagreed with me. He actually thought that culture for the sake of culture is also something that, that I, I, I'm ignoring, but really has a value. I don't know. Or did you hear uh, any interesting. interesting feedback? Well, yeah. Well, just on that point, I mean, obviously, a, Judaism is not equivalent to a, a sports team. Well, I would hope not. But even in the realm of sports, I think there are people who take sports very seriously. And it m- might be unfair to completely dismiss that as uh, significant. Maybe in terms of a marriage criteria, it might be extreme. But Rifki, I mean, you're the sports fan here. I'm surprised that you're the one yeah. dismissing that mentality. I mean, it's true. I enjoyed watching the NBA Finals last week. I really enjoy sports. I really do feel allegiance to certain teams. Um, I think what I one of the things that I try to keep in mind, even though it is hard, you know, when you're a fan, you do get wrapped up in things, but I do try hard to separate being a fan and being interested in the players and the sports and the team from understanding what sports really is to me, to America, you know, things like that, being able to separate those things. Right. And how about what Judaism really is to you? Well, I would imagine that Judaism is a little bit more fundamental. And let me say it stronger. Judaism is more fundamental Mm -hmm. than sports. Look, go Knicks. Uh, I think next year is going to be our year, by the way. I wouldn't know. (laughs) Well, another piece of feedback that we got was from uh, our avid listener, Adi, um, who said something that I think other people may have said also to you. I didn't hear anyone else say it, but basically the thing that I said at the very end of the episode where I said that I'm, I regret reading Michael Chavon's book, I regret <laughs> liking his book um, because of now his views that have come out on intermarriage and, and Israel. I just want to say that I was completely joking, or I was just say 75% joking when I said that. He does that. need a haircut. That part he you were serious ha- about. Well, no, actually, even on that, I was, I, because I actually admire his hair, I think when... But his kippah fell off. I mean, that's, that's true, but when a man can pull off long hair, especially going along with a long beard, I am a little bit jealous. I think that's you cool. You don't think that's your look? I don't think I can pull it off, but I, I'm jealous of other people who can. Your hair's a little curly for it. It might make it a yeah, little harder. Yeah, a little hard. <laughs> but so, I, I mean, I don't regret reading his book. I liked his book. I read um, Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty good. Maybe a little bit overrated because it won the Pulitzer Prize and I don't... But I did enjoy it, and I mm-hmm. didn't. I was totally joking when I yeah. when I said that. Just I to actually be clear. never really got into his novels. I, I really liked his nonfiction. Like I really enjoy his essays, but I don't know for some reason the novels don't do it for me. Mm-hmm. But okay, thank you for clarifying that yeah, important and I, and, position. And I guess I'll just clarify further that like I don't think he's a bad person. He seems like a really nice and thoughtful guy. Um, I think he's very mistaken in his worldview, um, but I don't hold that against him as a person. What a mensch you are. So (laughs) open-minded. Well, actually, after our episode came out last week and we posted about it on Instagram, Michael Chabon himself liked our post. So, Michael, if you're listening again this week, we love you. Michael, we're not going to fight about this, okay? Paul, 
think I told you I'm a lover, not a fighter. This week we wanted to talk about journalism. More specifically, what should the role of journalism be in our society and what are some of its limitations? Gary Rosenblatt, the editor of the New York Jewish Week, wrote an article a few days ago in which he reflected on the current state of journalism in America. Rosenblatt writes about two different events that he moderated in the last week, both of which featured Pulitzer Prize winning journalists discussing the responsibilities of journalists today. The first event featured Clyde Haberman and his daughter Maggie Haberman, both of whom work for the New York Times. A lot of the focus was on President Trump and his disdain for the media. Trump has been quoted as referring to the media as the enemy of the people, and he regularly refers to news stories he doesn't like as, quote, fake news. The Habermans stress that Trump's attitude is causing an erosion of national discourse, which poses a threat to democracy. Rosenblatt writes that the Habermans' implicit message, based on their dogged dedication to, quote, get the story right, is that a free society needs a free press, and that journalists have a vital responsibility to use their own moral judgment. But what we want to discuss is, might Trump's view of the media have some aspect of validity to it? The second event that Rosenblatt discusses featured Brett Stevens, now an opinion writer at the New York Times and formerly of the Wall Street Journal. Stevens is a staunch supporter of Israel, and he says that he came to this position through his work as a journalist in the early 2000s covering the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Stevens explains that the prevalent narrative in the media at the time was that Arafat wanted peace, but the conclusion he drew from his own work was that, quote, everything I read in the press was wrong. The accusation of bias against Israel is one that we are very familiar with, but is this accusation overblown? How should we be thinking about this? And I just want to give a disclaimer before we start this discussion in, in line with our other disclaimers. Neither of us are journalists. <laughs> I think Very that's important, important to say when Absolutely. we discuss this topic. Unless you consider this podcast journalism. Um, first of all, definitely is. Second of all, I do want to add that I was a columnist for the Frisch oh, newspaper okay. uh, in sophomore and junior year. So maybe call yourself not so, a journalist. Well, but, amateur uh, journalist. Sure. You and it paid was for that. opinion pieces. So kind of more my style. <laughs> okay. Well, let's start with the Trump piece. Do you think Trump really poses a threat to democracy because of his attacks on the media? Or do you think his attacks on the media have any validity to them? So I feel pretty comfortable saying that the way Trump deals with the media, the way Trump talks to the media is not a healthy thing for democracy. Of course, having this tension between our government institutions and a free press is, I think, very important. And it's not, you know, we talk about Trump and how anti-media he was, but I think we forget that the Democratic president before Trump was Barack Obama, who had a notoriously difficult relationship with the media. He did not like press conferences. He did not like an open floor for questions. You know, uh, he was a lot more subtle in his yeah, uh, that's criticism. The, you know, he wasn't tweeting so much. You know, like having a having a contentious relationship between politicians and the media is a good thing, right? right? Because politicians are trying to do something very specific and journalists and the media are trying to do something very different. And I think that's okay. And I think that's a good thing for, for that tension to exist. The way that Trump goes about attacking the media, I find to be a little bit more dangerous than Obama, because I think Obama was very careful in saying that he believed that media, print media, online media, these things were a good thing for America. And maybe he just didn't love the way that they portrayed certain things. The way that Trump attacks the institution as a whole, I think is 
on the one hand, I want to say dangerous, but on the other hand, it's just right. dumb. Well, like, obviously I don't think he really convinces most people, or I want to think he doesn't convince people. Right. I mean, most of the things he says are very overblown. So when I say does it have any validity to it, obviously, I mean, like, is there a kernel of something real right. in there, even though obviously the way he's saying it is is very over the top and ridiculous. Yeah. yeah so of, is there a kernel of truth? Sure. I mean, Meaning do, he, do you, he, there's been talk for many years about a liberal media bias, let's say. Do you, and do he's you ever watch cable that. news? Once in a while. Okay. I like rarely do. I feel like in the past year, I've probably seen five minutes of CNN, five minutes of Fox News, 10 minutes of MSNBC. And I thought all of it was crap. Like, I just thought it was pretty bad. <laughs> you have very high standards. I I know that from other things. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, but I also don't really understand. Like, when Trump says that it's bad, I think it's bad, too. Maybe I have different reasons for thinking it's bad. But, like, CNN is not a good reliable news source but, but i don't know if i agree with that okay. honestly but there was an example in the last week or two when i saw all over my facebook feed there were some articles but then a lot of just posts from people reposting the articles or talking about these articles that that quoted trump as referring to immigrants as animals and a lot of people were attacking him like okay finally he's saying what he really thinks and then it came out like a day later that in the talk where trump said that statement the context was actually referring to the gang ms-13 that he talks about a lot and he was talking about those gang members as animals not all immigrants and but many people in the media were all too eager to to jump on that and and talk about that like that's and then trump later obviously said see i was right the media is always wrong they're out to get me they're lying obviously that's one case and most of the time when he says that it's it's not the way he says it but i think it's true that a lot of the media and you know the country in general are kind of just like ready to pounce on him for anything and sometimes that could be taken a little too far yeah journalism not just since trump but journalism is often failing right you have people like gary rosenblatt who moderated that panel gary rosenblatt is the editor of the jewish week he is an excellent very 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 impressive journalist not only as an editor as someone who curates and helps to bring a newspaper to publication but also someone who reports deeply and well and brings news stories to light that weren't all the rise going to be seen of course the 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 first thing that i think about is the baruch lanner scandal gary rosenblatt broke that story against the advice of many people in the jewish world baruch lanner was an NCSY advisor, very well respected, who had been molesting children for years and years, and it was kind of swept under the rug by the OU, and um, and Gary Rosenblatt finally brought that to light. And I think there are other journalists and there are other institutions that are known for doing that sort of deep work. When we talk about what journalism is and what it really brings to the world, I mean, this is a, this is a made up uh, definition, so t- you can you can disagree with me on this, but I think what journalism really is meant to do is both sort of literally report things that happen, but also give it the context, right? So when you say Trump called MS-13 members animals, even that, I think, is not a responsible news story. Is it more true than Trump called immigrants animals? Sure, that's more true. But I think responsible journalism is also telling us what MS-13 is, what these particular people did, the context of who these people were, telling us more than just a straight fact on the ground. Right. I, I like a lot of the things that you're saying. Um, I think it's you said it very well. I didn't, and I also didn't mean to like defend Trump. I'm, I think the Trump situation is like an interesting way of looking at journalism in general and the responsibility of journalists. And I like what you said about Gary Rosenblatt. Also, like I remember 
Um, you know, because the Jewish week has broken a lot of scandals, unfortunately, you know, for the scandals, not for the Jewish week in the, yeah. in the Jewish community. Um, and I remember him, uh, Gary Rosenblatt, writing about his approach to, to some of these things. And he really does, he has upset a lot of people, as you mentioned. Um, but I also think that he does come at it from a place of sensitivity to the community and, you know, when we talk about journalism from a Jewish context, I think, it, to me, it gets a little bit more interesting um, when we bring in the concepts of, like, you know, Lashon Hara, or, you know, speaking evil or slanderously about other people or about other Jews. Um, how does that play into things? You know, when when does something need to be said in order to protect people, to protect kids, to protect potential victims? But when is it taken too far? When are when are people's reputations and lives ruined for stories that did not need to be put out there? I think it's obviously a very hard line to draw sometimes, but yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that's that's really the fundamental question. And I think when it, you know we're not just coming from it from a halachic perspective, but we're thinking about the values behind it, right? The values of what it means to be responsible in journalism. I think people like Clyde Haberman and Maggie Haberman also have this sort of meta value of what they're looking to do. Both of them excellent, uh, respected journalists. And I think what journalism really is journal. And, and I think the same thing, right? When we come back to something like MS13, it is valuable to give people context. That is something that affects the way that I think about people. That affects the way that I think about immigrants that affects the way that I think about gang members all of those things are important right I mean sometimes you draw you you have to ask what is the responsibility of the reader meaning do you have to define every term and group that you talk about or is the reader expected if they don't know something to look it up instead of just jumping to conclusions so I guess my, my take and I'd be curious to hear if you disagree but my take is that the journalist has a, a very clear uh, mandate to explain as much as he or she yeah, really can. I think, in theory, I agree, but in practicality, I think that's unrealistic because not you know articles are limited by space right. and the space they're trying to use to tell the story, not to explain the terms and the groups. But I mean, moving on, getting to the second part of the introduction, which was about Israel. Um, like I said, you hear about bias against Israel all the time. Something that I've found interesting more recently that now that my you know friend Facebook friend circle has expanded a little bit. I I've what seen a yeah I've I've seen things more recently that I just found very interesting where you see people saying the exact opposite people accusing specifically the New York Times because it is you know the paper of record um, accusing the New York Times of bias against the Palestinians and when you depending on where you're looking that's something that is said very often and all over the place that Israel uh, New York Times is way too pro Israel and way too anti Palestinian so they can't I mean could they both be right I mean <laughs> I, it feels to me like bias is clearly not only, but bias is also in the eye of the beholder, right? I see what I want to see. There's also the difference between saying, oh, I see bias in this headline. No, 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 the headline's fine, but the article is this. Or, yeah, the fact is true, but it's not giving context, right? All of these well, things are saying, sort of happening simultaneously. You're talking about context. So yeah. I think that a lot of times there's a lot of things that are true, but how meant like, what are you going to decide to write about? Yeah, absolutely. And, which- and you're right. They, they are limited by space, but at the same time, I mean, look, uh, again, I'm, I'm always the idealist. You cannot be untruthful Bigadol, like in a larger context, untruthful because you're like limited by space. If you're limited by space, you can't just lie. Well, there's of lying that. by omission. Just it's just as much. Okay. Well, so I mean, obviously, there's also actual mistakes that are made and that sometimes get corrected, sometimes don't. Like in my mind, the one of the biggest and first examples of like the anti-Israel bias slash mistake 
is was in 2000. It was the first day of the Intifada, September 30th, 2000. And there was a picture. I remember it being on the front page, but when I was doing research, it was actually on the fifth or sixth page. I of remember. The front I remember reading it. We were at. We were at like a family friends for a Shabbat lunch. And I remember seeing that picture in yeah. the paper. So there's a picture of like a very angry looking Israeli policeman ho- ho- waving a baton, like a metal or wooden baton, and on, on the bottom of the picture is a, bl- a bloodied young man. And the caption was an Israeli policeman and a Palestinian on Temple Mount. Now, first of all, in the, in the picture itself, in the background, you clearly see a gas station. So anyone who knows anything about Jerusalem and the Temple Mount knows that there are no gas stations on the Temple Mount. I just want to say, like, I would not have known that there were no gas Like, what? I would assume there were no gas stations on the Temple Come Mount. On. But, like, I don't know. I've never been to the Temple Mount. What do uh, I know? You've I- never seen pictures? Uh, yeah, there's, there's like the trees. Mosque, there's the <laughs> but there's also this huge plaza Dome of the in rock, the middle, and there's meaning, all these trees. Yeah, it's like a holy place. There's no cars, right? But there, I, I think of it like I could imagine it being like the hotel, right? There's this whole like parking. There's no lot gas on stations the at the hotel either, right? But there's a parking lot. <laughs> meaning, yes, that's outside. If, if someone plaza, said to there's me, no cars. Right, but that's not even the not really, but that's not even the main point. The main point is that in in reality, that bloodied Palestinian was actually Tuvia Grossman a Jewish American student who had been beaten by an Arab mob and was almost killed by them. And this policeman was actually protecting this Jew in Jerusalem, not even in the old city. And so this caption was like so wildly incorrect in so many ways. And this is the New York Times. And so obviously tons of people were upset. And the the Times first had like a small correction. The correction wasn't even fully correct. That was the correction was corrected. And then they had an art, a small article uh, a week or two later talking about the whole thing and what they got wrong about it. But so people claimed, okay, yeah, mistakes are made, but did they want to make that mistake? Did what did that picture so clearly fit their agenda that they were all too eager to put it in without properly I'm you know that's that obviously well, I'm sure there are probably things on the other side I don't know about them offhand right. but I mean I'm asking you to me when, when I hear something like that I, I roll my eyes because it seems a little bit silly to me I think journalists don't want to make mistakes maybe it fit into the narrative they already thought but not because they weren't saying to themselves well, I'm I, not going to do any research I think because what I know happened this is was, true I think, what happened I think was they were rushing to print Associated they had a deadline. Press posted the picture I think like incorrectly and a lot of other publications picked picked it up from that yeah. original source. Yeah, they didn't do their due diligence. Right. It's I, bad, but I don't think it's malicious. I don't know. What do you, what do you well, think? Well, because I think, I, I mean, we shouldn't dwell on that example because there are other things I want to talk about, but saying that the kid was a Palestinian when he, in fact, was an Israeli, I think is a fair mistake if that's the information you were given. But I do think anyone who's supposed to be an expert, like a car- correspondent on that region, sees that picture and doesn't immediately say something's wrong when a gas station is labeled as a Temple Mount, I think is an egregious error and something that should be, you know, held accountable for it as opposed to just an innocent mistake. What is held accountable for? I, I don't like know. what should happen? Reprimanded? Maybe they were reprimanded. Okay. I, I don't know. Maybe they were. I'm just right. I'm just saying that's what I would yeah, do. Yeah, definitely. I, was in I think one of the problems that journalists often make, and this is especially a problem with with print journalism, or you know what? I take it back. Even more a problem with internet journalism because there's this rush to be the first to get information out. And because everyone's trying so hard, they maybe don't do the due diligence that they need to do to not only ascertain whether their facts are correct, but to be able to do that slower, maybe long-form journalism to really explain and put everything into context. They're too busy being the first to break news. Right, for sure. Like New York Times has done this before. They've sent out these like breaking news and then five minutes later they sent out the correction, right? With elections also, they want to be 
the first one to say who won, and sometimes yeah. that and that's embarrassing, right? Well, maybe to close out this discussion, we can combine the Jewish Gary Rosenblatt and Jewish community thing with the Israel thing. So the Promised podcast, which is a podcast that we both listen to and are big fans of, so they had an extra segment last week where. Noah Ephron talked about a book that he wrote years ago in which he discussed secular Israeli attitudes towards Haredim. And now it turns out that this book was cited by a new UN report finding that Israel is an apartheid country. And they used the Noah Ephron's book as a su- part of the support <laughs> to talk about how, see, now we know that is, this is how we know that Israel is an apartheid country. He finally made it. And yeah, and so, so Noah kind of raised the question about, you know, when Jewish, you know, Israeli or just Jewish journalists criticize Israel or criticize more broadly, criticize the Jewish community. And then that criticism is then used by real enemies of Jews and of Israel to say, see, even their own people acknowledge how bad they are. I mean, it's the argument that that I think is often made inside the Jewish community or inside any minority community about sort of airing your dirty laundry, right? Like to what extent? Right. So it's where do you draw the line? When is it for Gary Rosenblatt to publish about you know Baruch right. Lanner? Was that inappropriate? Because now everyone knows that Jews can also be you know serial molesters. Okay, so the extreme example that you said before right, is if somebody is, could be harmed, then you know you have to say it. Fine, but what about a less extreme example? Like for example, criticizing Israel. You know that there's going to be tons of criticism of Israel out there, whether you personally write your article or not. So it, by you writing your article, like let's say Haaretz to me is the, is the prime example of this because it's like every time I look at it, there are such blatant, you know, attacks in the in the harshest possible terms against Israel. And I often see, not that I really look at alt-right, um, neo-Nazi, whatever publications, but I've, I have seen many examples where those type of sites will use Haaretz, specifically Haaretz articles, to criticize the Jews and, and Israel and say, like, look, see, even their own people say how bad and rotten they are. So, Uri, I mean, maybe you would disagree with me, and I would be interested in sort of hearing your thoughts about it, but I actually don't think that that's a healthy way for us to be making decisions. I think we have to make decisions in terms of what we write and what we publish based Based on truth. That's why I think what Haaretz does, and even if you disagree with their slant, what they're doing is important work. They're writing the articles that they think need to be written. They're giving it the context that they think need to be needs to be written. Right? They're they're giving it all of this. And then if people cherry pick certain things out, that's on them. You're writing the truth, and all you can do is hope that people look at the context well, and understand the larger picture. I don't know. When it comes to Haaretz, I wouldn't call it cherry picking because I think that's the go-to so attitude that they have. So you can make the claim that Haaretz is doing it wrong, but still the idea of saying the concept, I'm not, you're right. I mean. I like the way Noah presented it, which was what I understood him to be saying was that he didn't say he regrets writing the book and he didn't say people shouldn't write that type of journalism. But what I think he was saying is that it's important to just be aware of that concept and that phenomenon when you are writing these things because it might affect how you write it, even right. if it's just to a minor degree. So even more so, make sure to use that context and make sure to light, write about the larger picture and make sure to put all of these things, right? To just say, the way Israel is treating Palestinians is wrong, okay, and now I'm going to go leave my computer and go go for a walk, right? You have to be able to give the larger context and therefore, hopefully, when people are reading your story, they're not just saying, ha, it, they wrote that one line, Israel is treating the Palestinians poorly, okay, now we're done, but be able to give that context and then people can take that context and hopefully learn more from it. That is the point of responsible journalism. Right, but as I said before, I think the problem is you just can't always give full context or you, you can never give full context, really. But if the two, cho- of course, it's never this extreme, but if the two choices are right as well as you can and with as much context and truth and honesty as you can or don't write, 
you can't just not write. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I would agree with that. I personally can never see myself being a journalist. And I think the main reason is because... Well, I mean, I, I want people to like me, <laughs> mainly, I guess. But so I don't, I would never want to be the one to write that, that kind of article, like making Jews look bad, making Israel look bad. Even if I think somebody should write it, I just don't want to be the one to do it. I'll do it. <laughs> I'll take care of it. Don't you worry. Um, okay. Good to know. <laughs> if anyone has breaking news that they want to share with uh, Talking Tackless, I'm ready to, uh, I'm ready to pull the trigger. Yeah, and I also I think it's interesting the way you were just saying how you know this is a sign of like a free society and to to be honest about what's going on you know in, in sharp contrast to Trump who I think is just a very immature person so he can't take anything that's criticizing him like you know Netanyahu as much as some people may hate him is just a lot smarter than Trump so when he talks about the media even though he does lash out a lot yeah, against, he also against says the media fake news all the time. but he also says things that of like see this is how we we have a democracy. This is why yeah. we're free because we're able to have That's such Mike critical Pence, right? media. When I was, I was going to say the Mike Pence thing also, right? He was seeing Hamilton on Broadway. I think it was after Trump was elected, but before he took office and Pence was with his daughter and I think somebody else. And after the show, when the cast was all on stage, one of the cast members read a prepared statement that was addressed directly at Mike Pence and talking about how his the new administration better be good to immigrants and minorities and all people and the environment and stuff like that. So obviously, it was definitely an uncomfortable moment for Mike Pence. And you can say borderline inappropriate. That's, I think, a larger conversation. I think there's definitely room on both sides to, to have that conversation. Um, but I think that the cast did what they thought was, was important for them to do. And Mike Pence, instead of lashing out, instead of sort of saying, this is disgusting, this is how they treat the vice president, this is how all these things, he basically said, he no, no, this is, it. yeah, he said, this is a teaching moment for me. And I had a discussion with my daughter about it afterwards. And I said, you know, these people have their right and it's their right to, to speak to me however they feel comfortable and however they feel like they need to. Yeah, I think I remember what Penn said to his daughter at the time was that's what freedom sounds like. Yeah. And you, whether you like him or not, that was definitely the smartest thing he possibly yeah, could have said. it's just a little bit classier. I think Trump doesn't have that filter and I think Mike Pence in some ways is a little bit more dangerous because of that because he he, right. he knows how to speak a little bit better um, even though that is of course also part of Trump's appeal. Maybe not appeal to me, maybe not appeal to you, but it is part of his appeal that he, he, he says what he believes and he believes that the media is full of crap. Pence 2020. <laughs> no. That was a joke. <laughs> you have to say that at the end of every episode. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I read the news today, oh boy, about a And that's our show. Thank you all so much for listening at home. And thank you to Drive In Productions, the premier film studio in New York City. They sp- In the world. In the world, yeah. They sponsor our show, and we record in their gorgeous, amazing studio. And thank you to Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade. They are the official band of Talking Talkless, and they give us our theme song. All right, thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.